0: may be true about me, but it's certainly true about our relationship. Um, I have been so thankful for what felt like just a, um, a divine providence, something that God orchestrated that I, I couldn't have managed or manipulated, but I'm really grateful. I've just received it as a gift. Our friendship over the years, the partnership between our churches. Um, I was here at the first renewal conference four years ago. I'm delighted to be back. Forge some relationships there, some conversations on the, on the down moments, which I hope we can do again this time. Uh, I enjoy getting to open the scriptures and to share. I enjoy getting to know stories and the hearts of leaders in this area all the more, so I hope that we can become friends. I will say this at the outset I've been invited to do something that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, Femi has asked me to speak from the scriptures and to share my story, what we have done. So I'm going to say something at the outset uh, that makes me uncomfortable because being self-referential makes me nervous. Um, I could, I've got the next 45 minutes to share a story about leadership development and how we've tried. And so I'm going to tell some stories of wins and victories that we've had. I could fill many sessions with weaknesses and missteps. And so in sharing this story, I don't want you to hear me saying that we've cracked the code and I've figured it all out. But I'm hoping that the little places of breakthrough that we've experienced might serve you and might encourage you. But, but in me sharing those, please don't mishear me. Um, I could parade a lot of people up that would share all the weaknesses and all the missteps. Uh, I need the Lord's grace over this ministry, um, as we all do. So if I were to give this a a secondary title to the one that, that Femi just gave, I would call it Aiming at Antioch. I would call it aiming at Antioch. and the planting of Seven Mile Road, we started about seven years ago dreaming and praying towards the planting of this church in the city center of Houston called Seven Mile Road based off of Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. And we started with a dream in our heart, and the dream in many ways was, was forged and formed by the story of the church in Antioch in Acts 11 and Acts 13. It has been a, a guiding star for us. We, we keep our eyes on it. We keep going, okay, are we still on track? Are we still headed in that direction? And in some ways related to what Femi just did for us, you, you know, who else is equipped to do <laughs> theology of the whole Bible, history of a Christianity in a nation with some really practical application, he, he, just, he just painted on a canvas as large as the world in a beautiful way. What I'd like to do is, is zoom in quite particularly and say, how does the application of this idea, these ideas that Femi has just sketched out, what does it look like in a, in a particular local congregation? trying to put flesh and bones around it, not just to be about conversion or just to be about transformation, but to be about the mission of God by the power of God, transformed and set loose on the mission of God. We started with a concept, the concept of an upper room church versus a lower room church. It has been defined in different ways by different thinkers, but it helped us to think about aiming at Antioch as a church, aiming at the sort of sending church that we get in introduced to in Acts 11 and Acts 13, we started saying, well, what does that look like? What are the contours of that? And we started to think about an upper room church and a lower room church and the dynamics of these two. A lower room church in many ways is, Femi, what you were describing that has, has happened in this turning in over the last 40 or 50 years, tending to ourselves. A lower room church is marked by one of these four Ps. It's it's oftentimes people are connecting to a church and staying in a church for one of these four Ps. This is how you know you're on your way to becoming a lower room church. People come because of the programs. You meet all of my needs. Okay. You you teach me how to be a parent. You teach me how to disciple my kids. You teach me how to balance my finances. You've met every one of my needs. Your programs are amazing. The buffet of them tends to everything I need. The programs are great. I'm here because of the people. There maybe I'm single and there's some cute people of the opposite gender, singing in the choir apparently. Um, You know, like I'm here to meet somebody or I'm here because the people are so friendly They've just welcomed me. They're my kind of people. I'm here for the people primarily. Okay? I'm here for the place. Either it's incredibly convenient, I can walk there. It's so so comfortable. Or it's beautiful. Have you seen the building? Have you seen the stage? Have you seen. It's something about the place that draws people in. And the last one the preacher. Have you heard him? (coughs) Like, what happens to me when he speaks? That's why I go to that place. Now, when people connect to a church and stay in a church for one or a combination of those four Ps, it is on its way to becoming a lower room church. Now, a lower room church, let me tell you, A lower room church is a space where it feels like somebody closed all the doors and the windows and turned off the air conditioning. It's starting to get a little bit stuffy and it feels like it's closing in on us. This is the way that I would characterize what I heard you saying has happened in this swing that when all of a sudden we all get together and it's just about us. Isn't this great? We got the right people and the right programs in the right place with the right preacher. We're going to enjoy this. And the struggle is that when we settle in and say, isn't this great? (sighs) Start being able not to breathe. Because the winds of the Spirit don't blow there. The the winds of the Spirit don't blow on that. And so it raises the question, what's left? Oftentimes when I talk with people, especially church planners, I spend a lot of time training church planners, and we work through the four Ps of a lower room church, and they go... (sighs) What else is there? <laughs> You're telling me it's not the people, it's not the programs, it's not the place, it's not the preacher. What is it? And as we're together going to aim at Antioch, what I would like to propose is this, a shorthand definition of the church that I think the New Testament would put before us. And I think that, that the Antioch church that we're going to study together is going to be the, the clearest picture of. It's the people of God, on the mission of God, by the power of God. I believe that if we ask the New Testament, tell me what is the church? It's not a place, and it is not a preacher, and it is not programs. It's not even just the people. It is the people of God, on the mission of God, by the power of God. That is the church. And so... We made a commitment at Seven Mile Road, although imperfectly, with flaws all along the way, but we did make this commitment together before we did anything. We began to beg God. And we set our gaze and our strategy and our energy. We said, God, we want to be in the upper room. We want to be in that place where people experience the winds of the Spirit blowing through their souls and through the communities, they say, I'm caught up in something eternal. The power of God is working in me for the benefit of the city because, hello, I have been consecrated and commissioned. That that this, this calling that has turned into consecration has sent me out. And as people get caught up into that, we don't have to convince them. When someone tastes the power of getting used by God for the purposes of eternity, they say, I'm in. Yeah. And so we said we're, we're going to situate ourselves in the upper room and we're going to aim at Antioch. Because quite frankly, Jerusalem quickly became a lower room church. Yeah. Yeah. They had all the right preachers. They had the place, the central spot where God moves. We've got the right people. We've got all the right stuff. But the church that ignited a gospel movement the church planning movement that, that continued to ring out throughout the New Testament and throughout church history for 400 years after the New Testament was concluded, the sending place for the church, Antioch. It was the heartbeat. And so towards that end, what I want to do is I want to read the account of Antioch. I want us to spend some time studying it in each of these points. So I'm, to, I'm just going to make six notes of an Antioch church. We're gonna draw them out and then I'll I'll share with you how we're trying. So that you might see. Here's a common example with the recognition that my context is not your context. There may be some things that we try and go, no, that's not it. That's fine. I'm not making any of it prescriptive. You're gonna to have to apply this to your setting and your context. But I wanna share my story as we study this text and look at what are six marks of an Antioch church, an uproom church, a people of God, on the mission of God, with the power of God church, that is engaged in this sort of leadership development for mission. You with me? Just before I read this text, I would like to pray and ask for the spirit of God's help as we do this work. Would you join me? So Father, we pause and first we want to say thank you. Thank you that you are a speaking God. I'm so grateful that you haven't left us to wonder what you're like, what you value, how you move. You've told us. We don't have to shoot in the dark or come up with our own kind of ways to do it or rely on our own strength or our own strategy. God, that we believe that when we open the Bible, you open your mouth. And so we, with eager anticipation, come to this moment, and I pray that we would be rightly Sobered. Rightly open. I pray that this would not be an an active participant up here and then consumers sitting in chairs, but that we would be an active community of men and women saying, here we are, your servants, speak to us. That we would be actively responding in hopes, God, that you would ignite a movement here in Nigeria for the sake of your glory of churches that aim at Antioch, that say, we want to be the people of God on the mission of God, by the power of God. Make it true by your spirit in these moments. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Would you open with me to Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19, and permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. It says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Yes. We would be really wise to pay attention. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Some might have called that conversion and transformation. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up, and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And now the first three verses of chapter 13 say this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. This is the initial picture that we are given of the sending church of the New Testament and of early church history. And what I'd like to identify is six marks of the Antioch church. Six marks of an upper room church that is the people of God on the mission of God by the power of God. The first is this. The first mark of this sort of church is is this. The pastor is not the hero. (laughs) Uh-oh. Who comes to a pastor's conference and makes the first point? I'm just preaching the Bible. Okay. Uh, the pastor is not the hero. Can't be. Can't be if we are going to be an upper room church that is defined as the people of God on the mission of God. Let me see if I can let me see if I can prove it to you. Who planted the church at Antioch? Who planted it? Who's the lead planter? Did you hear it? Anybody? Verse 19 and 20. Let's look back. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. The greatest church in the New Testament... That started the missionary gospel movement that planted churches over the whole of the known world, planted by some of them. nameless to history. started the church planting movement of the New Testament, some of them. nameless planters. That's not an accident. Yeah This is not an accident. This is the way God works. You see, the Holy Spirit blows through the people of God, on the mission of God. These were people that were scattered because of persecution, but they had to talk about Jesus. They had been converted, they were being transformed, they had been commissioned, and they couldn't stop talking. So they're running for their lives, but they keep telling people about Jesus, and upon arriving in Antioch, they start talking about Jesus, and unbeknownst to them... God births the church because, listen, it's the gospel that births churches, not church planters. If you think it's on the shoulders of you to be the guy, I'm going to stand and deliver in such a way that the crowd is going to gather. This, from the start, is a broken model that will not lead to Antioch. Antioch was, play, was planted by nameless people, people that have been forgotten by history. Listen, I need to tell you about the intoxicating danger of being a preacher. I hope to prevent and protect your soul in telling you this. It's dangerous for your soul to have a steady diet of standing up, and having other people sit down and they close their mouths and you open yours for extended periods of time. Listen to me. I'm, I'm for preaching. Here I am doing it. It's a worthy endeavor, but it's dangerous for your soul. Because what you can begin to believe is this, friends. You can start to believe that, yeah, that's true. When I have something to say, it probably is time for everyone else to be quiet. And not just when you're standing humbly in the place of holding God's word and saying, This is the only authority I have. The danger is this that we have grimy little fingerprints that want to be all over God's glory. And when a man stands holding the authority of God's word and speaks in a way that people's lives are changed, you can slowly start to believe, Yeah, that's true. That's what happens when I speak. Poison for your soul. There are few things that will rob the anointing more quickly than beginning to assume that your opinion is better than everyone else's. And then all of a sudden you start to become the sort of pastor leader that has an opinion on everything, and everyone should bend to your opinion because you're the man. Antioch was planted by some of them. Luke said, You know what? (laughs) I don't need to record their names because it was never about them. If your church becomes about you, you're on your way to becoming a lower room church. Beware. What we need, what we need, is men like John the Baptist that say, "It's not me." You know his favorite word that he repeated over and over in John one and John three. What he says over and over and over, "Not." They just keep asking, "So you the guy? Not me?" Is it you? No, not, not, not. not. Like he heads off every question with that because he's going, he says, I'm just a finger and a voice. Forget my name. Until that's our heart in stepping into the pulpit, don't step in. And quite frankly, it's something for me that has to die over and over. I was in my hotel room this morning again saying, God, would you kill it? Because if I'm stepping up trying to share your glory, you don't share your glory with anyone. He won't. And so, Here's some ways that we've tried to do this, trying to put flesh on it for you. Because if the if the pastor becomes central, we're in danger of moving towards a lower room church. Let me just tell you about a few things we've done since the planting of our church. One, we, we planted our church without any of the lower room dynamics. There was no preacher. There were no programs. The people showed up. but They actually didn't know who else had been called to participate. They, they just had to say yes to the mission of God. And the place was my living room with folding chairs uh, that were very uncomfortable. <laughs> and what we did is we prayed and we studied the rhythms of Jesus. And no one was central. And after we felt like, okay, the, the mission of Jesus is in our bones. We get what it is to be filled by the Spirit and to go out as missionaries. We planted five house churches and we still didn't have a Sunday gathering. So there was, there was nowhere to connect to say oh you just need to come here this guy it was it was five house churches spread across the city and there was one prerequisite for inviting anyone to house church they didn't go to worship anywhere because our commitment was we are not going to reshuffle the christian deck again we're not going to do that the church is supposed to advance on the gates of hell that's an offensive not a defensive when jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against you you've you've arrived at the gates of hell And you're shaking them, knowing that they're going to come down by the power of Jesus. And so, if we just posture ourselves to say, well, if we get a good enough band and a charismatic enough speaker, we'll get some of those people from over there and some of those people from over here. We can build a pretty good church that way. We said we're going to plant five house churches. And if you want to invite someone, you just got to make sure they don't worship anywhere. Then they're invited. And about... Nine months into this experiment, we were gathered back in my living room and we had a big whiteboard. And we started to, we, we, we took this time and we said, I want to know the names of the people that are in your house churches that don't yet know Jesus. And we started filling the whiteboard. And I started writing kind of big because I wanted it to fill the board, you know? That's what, that's what guys like me do. And, uh, and then all of a sudden they just kept calling them out. So I started writing smaller, smaller smaller, going up the sides, and there was this moment, there's this moment for us where we all stood back, and what we said was this, we started thinking, Jeremiah is a church planter, and he has a team of 34 people, and we all stood in that moment. I laid the marker down, and I stood back with my community, and we said, there are 35 church planters in this room. We're planting the church. The gospel of God is being sown in this city, We are the people of God on the mission of God by the power of God, and it's not dependent on any one person in this room. What I needed was to believe that in my own soul, and what I needed was for every room person in the room to believe it as well. It took us nine months, but as we realized that we had enmeshed ourselves in a series of relationships, we started to say, oh, this is what it could be like. You see, we cannot have the pastor be central. So, friend, how is it with your soul? Do you find yourself when you're not in the pulpit speaking far more than you're listening? Like if in every setting you assume that you should be the one filling the air, it may be that what has happened in the moment of preaching has started to get its grip on you in a way that is not healthy, that will rob you of what God wants to do through your people. It's not about you. And until we believe that, we will be locked firmly into the lower room. Point two The church in Antioch has an evangelistic engine. The, the upper room church has an evangelistic engine. Look back at verses 21 through 23 with me. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. The grace of God had become visible. He could see it. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What you see is that there's this flood of people coming to know the Lord. The kingdom is advancing on darkness. The gates of hell are rattling. This is the people of God, on the mission of God, by the power of God, and as a result, dead people are coming alive. Every time someone says yes to Jesus, we we understand that's what's happening. The dead is coming to life. It is a miraculous undertaking that was happening over and over and over again in Antioch. So much so that when Barbus showed up, he said, oh, that's what grace looks like. It looks like you. He's hearing the stories of people that have moved from death to life, and he's going, ah, grace is visible. One of the things I realized early in the planting of Seven Mile Road is that mission always recedes to the lowest common denominator, We can talk about it with excitement once or twice, and people oftentimes feel a little twinge of guilt. Oh yes, I should do that more. But until the life of the family is structured around the mission of God, it will continue to recede to the lowest common denominator. And so we we were aiming at Antioch with fierce devotion saying, okay, this church has an evangelistic engine. So how do we arrange our life together as a family that we might have an evangelistic engine? And let me just tell you a few things that, we've, that we did. As we were only inviting non-Christians to our house churches, we invited everyone that was meaningfully connected to Seven Mile Road to make a list of what they call their top five. Five men or women in your life that would describe themselves as far from God, but they're close to you. Who are they? Let's get to the point where they're listed in your Bible. There's mine. And if you hang out with anybody from Seven Mile Road, they'll have a little post-it note in the front of their Bible. And every morning when they meet with God, they start by praying for these people. We're the people of God on the mission of God. And the mission is people. (laughs) And so we started by saying, let's make sure we know who we're talking about. Because the mission can become so amorphous. Evangelism feels like this slippery non-reality. That, that, uh, oh, man, the number of truth bombs that I was scrolling down on my... But, but this, this note you made about um, when we quit building relationships, uh, we become fearful. Distant, distant, fearful. All of a sudden, it's enemies. It's us versus them. When the relationship drains out of the system, there's no mission to speak of. And by the way, relationship shows up with names and faces and stories. Yeah. Like, so, so what we said is we want you to list the people. We want to know who they are. We want to fill whiteboards with them. We want to pray together. And you got, I got to tell you, when you start getting your community together and you start circling people that are about to get baptized at your next gathering, and it, we do it where the person who leads the person to the Lord does the dunking. So when you have people from your community standing and saying, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, You're buried with Christ and raised up to walk in newness of life and the water splashing all over people. And you remember the night when you put it up on the whiteboard? And everybody was praying aloud at the same time. That does something to the soul of a church. You start saying, we might actually be the people of God on the mission of God by the power of God, and we don't have to wait for Femi to do it? That's a game changer. Your people have all that they need to lead men and women to saving faith in Jesus. The Spirit of God is in them. We arranged our life together around monthly neighborhood meals. Now, this may not work for you. This is one of the things we did. We said that if someone walks into the back of our church and at the end of service says, I love everything that happened here, I'm in. What does it mean for me to be meaningfully involved in the life of Jesus's church? What we wanted to make impossible was that they would live a monthly rhythm with us without spending meaningful time with non-Christians. We're convinced that if we build a discipleship model in the life of the church that allows someone to only spend time with Christians when they do everything that the pastor is asking them to do, we have failed them desperately. And so what we said is, the third week of the month, every one of our house churches takes their, each person has top five that they've been praying for, and we have a, an arms wide open love feast. And we say, hey, invite the people you've been praying for. And so everybody's praying, and the week leading up, hey, who are you inviting? What's going on? And my house oftentimes, Francis was there. We'd have 12 or 15 people in house church, and on, on meal night, we'd have 40 people. People that have been coming for five and six years. Richard, my, my neighbor who's Jewish, but calls himself an atheist, that has read the Gospel of John with me, and when his son quit talking to him, I was the one that he called and said, can we talk about this, and will you pray for me? And I was like, but you don't believe in God? (laughs) It was simple. It was food. It's like, hey, just come eat. And we do it every month. The largest gathering of Seven Mile Road every month is not in a worship center. It's on the third week of the month, spread out in 44 homes all over the city. Because been praying, and it's and it's half non-Christians. Because we want to make it impossible that you would live the rhythms of the church and not find yourself in the upper room. Which is the people of God on the mission of God by the power of God. So if you can do everything, if the everything you ask of your people, if your people go, I'll be there. Bible study, another Bible study, another training, another... and and you're 12, 15, 20 hours of their week, but then you're telling them to do mission, when are they going to do it? You have removed them from the mission, and then you lay guilt on them when you preach it to them and wonder why they don't do it. It's because your discipleship plan has removed them from God's plan for their lives. I'm running out of time. I'm only on point two. I'm becoming more Nigerian the longer I get here, my friend. I didn't even have your fancy energy drink either. I'm just drinking water, man. This might really be the anointing. Sorry. There's so much I wanna say on this point. I'm just gonna say a couple other quick things and we'll move on. To join Seven Mile Road. When you join Seven Mile Road, everyone who joins Seven Mile Road, we stand up front and say, You're not joining an institution, you're joining a movement. And so, what that means is, by the end of this process, you are going to develop your individual discipleship plan, which is your next steps of obedience with Jesus. And one of those is about mission. So, if Jesus could come sit in the chair next to you and describe and say, Hey, what would your next step of obedience look like in being a missionary? Because, hello, that's your identity. And they they articulate that, and then they sit with an elder and they process it. And on my desk, in my office, is a stack of our gospel partner cards. On one side is a picture of the gospel partner, and on the back side is their next steps with Jesus for this year. And our elders every morning are praying over this and I'm texting my gospel partners and going, hey, you you said you're praying for your neighbor, Nicole, hoping to read the gospel of John with her. How's that going? I'm praying for you. How can we support you in that? Because the church exists to set the people free on the mission of God. If we don't arrange ourselves as a family around the mission of God, the mission will always recede to the lowest common denominator. It's our organizing principle. It's who we are. We are the people of God on the mission of God, by the power of God. And the beauty is that when we do it, grace becomes visible. It comes and sits in your living room and, it, and its name is Mark. And Mark says, I, I just spent 36 years in prison for murder and I don't have anywhere to go. And he finds home in your home. And your kids greet him at the door with a big hug and they call him Uncle Mark. And he starts to experience the good news of the gospel. Then he asks you to baptize him. And then he says, I want my whole life to be about Jesus. And he, he sits one day in house church across from Francis and KK and Ollie from London and the other Mark who sacks groceries at the local grocery store. And he looks at this room full of people and he says, I've never had family, but now I do. And he said, who would have guessed it would look like this? Nigerians, Englishmen, Southerners from Texas in the United States. And he goes, I I finally have a family. In that moment, what you say is, I can see grace. It has skin on, it. it has a name. An evangelistic engine. Three, a strong reputation. The church in Antioch ends up with a strong reputation. Look at verse 26. It says this. It says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Christians, of course, means little Christs. It's as if the people in Antioch, as this gospel is moving like a wildfire through the city, everybody's going, what do we call this? What are they? They're not Jewish. It it used to be this Jewish thing, but it just jumped the rails and it's doing a whole new thing. Now, we don't know what to call it. You know what they are? They're just like little little Jesus Christ's walking around. You talk about the sort of reputation (laughs) that would call that out of a community. That people would say, you know what you are? You're just like a little Jesus moving around our city. We're going to call you Christians, little Christ's. No doubt it's connected to their radical, open-handed generosity. In verses 27 through 30, what they see is that this church is sharing of their resources wildly. That when they hear by the prophetic word that these people are going to be hungry, these these new Christians in Antioch open their hands and give generously towards those in need. What we see is that the church is developing a strong reputation, no doubt in connection with their generosity. Let me ask you this question Friend, if overnight the church that you were a part of was wiped off the map, ceased to exist, the people, the structure, everything, if it was gone, would the city where you are, the the neighborhood where you are, would people wake up and go, oh no, what are we going to do? Would they mourn and grieve because you were gone? If it's an upper room church, they will. If it's a lower room church that is just serving your own purposes, they'll go, who? What what are you talking about? I never interacted with those people. They were always in Bible study together. You see, The Antioch church has such a strong reputation that the people in the community are going, you're a little Christ. They're watching them respond with tremendous generosity. They're making an impact that's causing the city to take note. They're exhibiting fruit in a way that is causing flourishing all around them. Listen, we have to figure out how to organize our communities in such a way. We stand up every Sunday and we start by casting a vision that says, we exist for people that aren't here yet. That's why we're here. We're worshiping Jesus. And as we see him and as we're transformed by his glory and his grace, it's going to do something to you. And so I will issue a warning at the beginning of worship. I'll say, "Watch out." Because if you see him, if you really see him, your life will never be the same. And you will realize that we're not just here to build a great city. Or pardon me, a great a great church. We're here to build a great city. That's why the church exists. We say we exist to embody and declare God's redemptive story to every Houstonian. That's our mission. And we explain it in different ways every week, helping people connect to the upper room and saying, we're here to worship God. And as we do, something will happen to us. And so you're invited, friend. I say, if this is your first time, I'm so glad you're here. You're invited on the adventure of your life. And the adventure of their life is not what's going to happen in the next hour. It's not. It's what happens when we commission them with a benediction at the end of the service after the hour. We're filling them up with gospel good news and then we're, we're holding our hands out and we're speaking a blessing over them and saying, you're missionaries, now go! On the greatest adventure of your life, you can be used by the power of God on the mission of God. As the people of God, it's who you are. <laughs> a few ways that we've tried to do this. Uh, we planted the church in September and we felt like the Lord spoke in October and said, hey, I want you to give every dollar away in December. Which I don't know if it's the same here, but in in the States, there's a thing called year-end giving. December's the largest month for intake for any nonprofit or church. Sometimes you'll receive up to 25% of your annual budget in the month of December. And we felt like God was saying, hey, do you really trust me? Do you, do you really mean this thing that you stand up and say at the start of every service that you exist for people that are not yet here? Then let's see if your resources will tell that story. And so we made a commitment when well, we didn't know how our salaries were being paid, how this thing was going to work. We, we didn't know. We said, okay, every dollar in December, our first year, so, so we planted September 18th, starting December 1 to the end of the year, every dollar went out the door. And it unlocked something in the souls of our people. Because they were looking at me and going, oh, you really believe this? Like, you're not kidding? (laughs) Uh, You don't know how your family's going (laughs) to eat? That there was this moment where we're going, we're arranged around the mission. And what ended up happening is starting from that point, it ignited something in our church. Of our overall budget, 50 cents of every dollar goes to local and global mission. And it started there, 50 cents of every dollar. This has meant that we've had to make critical decisions around staffing and around our facility and around, around what we can do in production and what we can't do in production. Those things are rearranged around the mission of God. And so we cast that vision all the time. We go, well, yeah, we don't do that. We can't afford it because we give it all away. Now, when someone comes in and sits down in your community and that's what they're hearing from you, they're like, oh, we're on mission. Like this is wartime and we want to shake the gates of hell so all of your dollars don't terminate in this place. They go out of this place. That has transformed who we are as a people. As a result, we partner with the foster care system and every child that doesn't have a home in the city of Houston, when they get put in a home, they have to have a, a bed and a lot of times the holdup is that they can't get a, they, the people that are willing to receive them can't afford a new bed for them. So we went to foster care and said, that's the biggest holdup in the system. Listen, every single bed that a child without a home needs, just call us and we'll supply it. We've done it for years. And so the city calls us and says there's kids without a home. They need a home. The church meets that need. That's been that started with advent giving, with our budget giving. The foster care system, young lives and life house. These are two ministries that care to pregnant teenagers that are not married and their family is not willing to care for them. And so we fund the operating budget of one and part of the other and all of our all of the mentors in one that are meeting with these women one-on-one and worshipping them in the, with them once a week. They're all our ladies. And so they've said, we will give our time and our money to make sure that mamas who are 15 years old, babies who are giving birth to babies, will have a community surrounding them, walking with them, and caring for them. These are ministries that we fund. We, we, we spent all of our Advent giving two years ago on vulnerable women in our city, women that were exposed and in need, women that were coming out of prostitution and sex trafficking. We funded their ministries, many of them completely that year. We have ministry at Open Door Mission, Sharpen, and Jericho Road. These are all ministries for men coming out of addiction recovery. They've been addicted to drugs or alcohol, living on the streets, and they're finding their way home. We will have 30 and 40, 50 on a Sunday of these men that are part of our community. We've planted two house churches in homes for uh, addicts in recovery. And they're now leading in that space. We are raising up shepherds in house churches that are leading, that were saved in these ministries in conjunction with us funding and supporting and mentoring. I say all that to say, once again, we're not doing everything perfectly. We're doing lots of things poorly, but this is a particular grace of God that was unlocked, developing a strong reputation. I think by God's grace, if Seven Mile Road disappeared overnight, they would go, oh no, but what about the kids? What about the mamas that need help? What about the addicts? And I kind of think that's the way Jesus wants it. I think that's his design for the church. We would develop a strong reputation in the city. Four. An Antioch church, that's upper room, that's on the mission of God, it identifies, trains, and raises up leaders. It identifies, trains, and raises up leaders. Let me show this to you in the text. Look back at verse 23b, and then we'll we'll roll down through 26. It says this. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. This is Barnabas. So Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now you'll remember that when Saul was radically converted on his, on his uh, Damascus Road experiment experience, that when he showed up in Jerusalem, nobody wanted him. They were afraid of him. It was Barnabas that stood in the gap and encouraged him. Since that time, Paul has been off the map. He's been hiding out. He's been reworking his theology from the ground up. But he, as best we can tell, is just on the sidelines. But Barnabas is a recruiter. He's an identifier. He's looking at this church that's growing out of control. And he goes, they need to be strengthened in the Lord. They need theological roots. Who might I? I think, I think Saul's on the sidelines. He goes and he finds him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So you've got Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, probably in his 60s at this point. Uh, Paul, probably in his 30s, maybe early 40s at this point, is the greatest theologian on the planet. You've got the greatest encourager and the greatest theologian, the greatest head pastor, executive pastor you've ever known. Right? In chapter 13, verse 1, let me just show you what ends up happening. In a community like this, a community where no one pastor is central... It was planted by some of them. The leadership is shared by these two and they're not making it about them. And the people are being raised up that all of a sudden, this is what a leadership team will look like. Look like. A mutually submitted, incredibly diverse, really unique leadership group emerges. Chapter 13, verse one. Now there was in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now that is a leadership team. This is an odd group of people. Simeon, who is called Niger, many think that this is Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus. You remember the man that was compelled to carry the cross of Jesus? Most think that this is one and the same man. His nickname is Black. He is an African. Can we just make an aside here? People that look like me are late to the game. This is not a white man's religion, a Western religion. The Africans are in leadership. I don't have to tell you this. I just want to say thanks for having me. (laughs) Simeon was called black. He is from Cyrene. Lucius is also of Cyrene. Listen, there's Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manan, and Saul. 40% of this leadership team is African. The greatest church planting church of all time. Let's just make sure we see that. Menaean was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. He grew up in Herod's house. He probably remembers when the Magi came and Daddy Herod laid out the the hit on all the Jewish babies. He was friends lifelong growing up in that household. That was his context yet He came to see the glories of Jesus and is now leading in the church. Grace is visible in this place, right? Now think about this leadership team. Who would have guessed this wildly diverse, different, distinct leadership team in this place? It's because they're committed to identifying, training, and raising up leaders. When no one is demanding to be central and all are working in humility, there is space made for everyone to play. Everyone plays in the church. And listen, your role as a leader is to equip the saints for ministry to get out of the way and let them do it. That's your role. And this is why no one can be central and we must be the primary equippers of the saints. We must stop smuggling ministry out of the hands of the saints. Saying, well, let the professionals do it. The professionals can do it all they want if they want a lower room church. Professionals are excellent at keeping a really tidy lower room church. But they cannot lead an upper room church. They cannot lead it by doing all of the work. They can only lead it if they give the ministry away. They're saying, this is yours to do, so let me equip you and hold up your arms and empower you to do the work. I must decrease so that Jesus would increase as you step out in boldness. So are you looking at the folks within your community as future leaders, as elders, as church planners? Are you quickly and constantly stepping aside and giving them real ministry? Real responsibility. I think one of the ways that we did this is we are a decentralized structure. Once again, this is not prescriptive. I'm just telling you what we've done and it may be helpful, it might not. We plant house churches. And what we literally mean is that these are this is the community where church that we're reading about unfolds in this way. And so we plant these congregations and we started with the 34 in my house that became five house churches, that became 12, that became 17, that at the start of COVID was 23. There were 23 house churches when we started COVID and everybody got sent home. And the beautiful thing was that everybody went home and they did what they were trained to do. They loved and cared for their neighbors and they gave ministry away. And we reemerged at the other end of COVID with 40 house churches. We did not retreat. The mission of God was being done by the people of God and the power of God. And they didn't need me. Oh, how humbling. <laughs> Apparently, it really was never about me. Yeah. You see, when, when you take out the Sunday gathering, you find out, do we have a biblical definition of the church or not? Because if we've defined the church as some fiery worship and some charismatic preaching... I mean, it's not a New Testament definition, but it may be our functional definition. We have to identify, train, and raise up leaders. And as these church, these house churches have multiplied, each of them is led by two or three lay leaders that we have trained in an incubator. We, we, we listen to the house churches and we say, who's really on mission? Who really gets it? Who's really being used of God? Send their names to us. And then we reach out to them and say, can we train you? And they come in and they share their stories and confess their sin. And we get to know them down to their roots. And then we train them in our DNA and we help them understand how do you create a community? How do you create a context for flourishing in Christ? And then we set them loose. There are 92 house church shepherds in the city that have been trained by us that are the front lines of pastoral care in the life of our body. If someone is sick or if someone has a baby, or they're not going, where's the pastor? They don't call me. They're tended to by doctors and lawyers and former addicts. And the People that have been awakened by the grace of Jesus, empowered in the life of Jesus' church, and when their life is coming apart, they're calling the person that's shepherding them in their home and in their neighborhood. We've given the ministry away. It's been given away. And then when it comes to raise up staff members, what we're doing is, we say we kill careers at Seven Mile Road. Um, You know, I, I, I hire... Young executives and accountants that all of a sudden start to draw near and they're going, there's something unique happening here. And we say, well, what if we trained you and empowered you? And all of a sudden we have this staff full of super achievers that were on the fast track, but they say, I want to be in this not because I want to go build a platform and a name, but because it's electric to see the people of God on the mission of God and I'll give my life to it. And so I could tell you their stories if, if we had an endless time, I would. I'd tell you about Peter and Peyton and Derek and Zach and people that we continue to hire from really spectacular jobs that I'll come to them, I'll make this incredible pitch like, hey, will you take a 60% pay cut? <laughs> and then raise your salary on your own <laughs> to serve the mission of God. And they just keep going, yeah, I think i might do that. Five. Two more, stick with me. I think we're finally getting to the heart of it. Would you stick with me? Five, we have to create a culture of prayer and fasting. We have to. We don't have a choice. We have to create a culture of prayer and fasting. Look at verse 2 and 3 with me of chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I think Luke is trying to make a point. Did you hear it? Verse 2 and verse 3, or pardon me, verse 1. I can't speak. <laughs> verse 2 and in verse three, and then you've got two B slid in there. So the idea is this: the Holy Spirit moves in power. This is a Holy Spirit power sandwich, and the bread is prayer and fasting. Like the thing that is holding it together is they were fasting, and then the Spirit started to do things. So they were fasting, right? He's he's making sure you don't miss it. They were praying and fasting. They were hungering for God, and it wasn't just an individual thing; it was a corporate thing. They were together, unified in their hunger for God. Uh, I. <laughs> we get asked a lot I I love getting to do this and I'm, I'm glad to share we have a lot of church planners that filter through we host a lot of trainings in our facility and people come and, and they ask questions and, and I'll work through the things that I just shared with you but I'm under strong conviction and I've had to share this time and again that People want to say, why the success? Why all of this happening? And everything in me, all of my pride and all of my grimy g- glory fingerprints wants to say, well, we did this and we did this and we arranged ourselves this way. I think when I get to heaven, God's going to chuckle. <laughs> uh, your strategy was cute. <laughs> Listen, your people prayed and I heard them. <laughs> We fast and we pray as a church for 70 days a year. And we have since the year before we planted. And my people pray. They have a relatively prayerless pastor that continues to repent and ask God to teach me to pray. But I'll tell you, they pray. They are begging God to move and they believe that he will. And listen, he listens to those sorts of prayers. He hears them and he responds. There is so much that has been unlocked in secret places by people that actually believe we serve a God who listens to prayer. And so we have, we've done a few things. Like I say, we have seasons of fasting and prayer in the fall and to start the year, 40 days and 30 days respectively. We send out daily devotionals and we coach our people on what... what um, fasting looks like. We don't, it's not compulsory and nobody's looking over your shoulder and you don't have to do it the whole time. You can pick a few days along the way, but the idea is that every day in the life of our church, a dozen or two dozen or three dozen people are praying and fasting every day for a whole season. We're all stacking hands and we're saying we're going to war. And then we've established this rhythm where the first week of the month, we cancel everything in the church. There are no meetings. We worship, don't give me, but All of our smaller group meetings, all of our trainings, there's nothing going on except for one thing, our prayer meeting. Because we realize that the prayer meeting dies on the vine when you say, I really value it, but there's also seven other things on the calendar and you leave your people trying to choose what to do. And so we said, we're going to make the choice for you. There's only one thing we do, we pray. Will you come and pray with us? And we said for five years, this is our favorite and most important meeting. And the beautiful thing that has happened in the last six or eight months is that everybody believes it. It took us almost six years of every month saying it and canceling everything, and everybody's kinda like, prayer meeting? I gotta do something productive. I need to like, train me how to manage my finances. Give me a good program. Six years in, our people buy it. Our people are praying, and I don't know where it's leading, but I wanna be on that journey. It is electric. If you can lead your people into believing that what they need is the power of God, hold on, because they're about to be on the mission of God. They're about to be unleashed. We want to be the sort of people that prioritize prayer, that someday when we meet God, He laughs and says, cute, cute strategy. And I will tell you this, at uh, length to conversion before the last one, at uh, a recent prayer meeting, it's happened a few times now, but this one was particularly fun. We had this beautiful prayer meeting. People were just meeting with God. And at the end, we do this roving mic where we pray for things and people let us know and then we all pray aloud over things and we lay hands on people. And my friend Danny was in the back of the room. And Danny is is kind of a, He's, he's very shy. I wouldn't usually think that he would take the mic, and he speaks very hal- haltingly and quietly. You know, Danny is a sweet Jesus-loving guy, but he asked for the mic, and I was really amazed. And I was like, "Yeah, Danny," and he said, uh, "I just, I just wanted to tell everyone, I brought my coworker tonight. He just became a Christian because he says if this is what it is to be loved by God, he wants that." Danny, the people of God, on the mission of God, by the power of God. And after the service, I wasn't the one leading the prayer meeting. We had several different people leading. And I went and I introduced myself to, to Ian, his friend that became a Christian that night, was about to get baptized with us. And I was like, hey, I'm nice to meet you. I'm Jeremiah. And he's like, oh, do you go to church here? I was like, oh. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. He just was invited by Danny, met the living God in the midst of the people of God, hungering for his presence. He doesn't even know I exist. <laughs> Lastly, you have to release your best. You have to release your best. Did you hear it in the middle of verse 2? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, if I'm in that prayer meeting and what I hear from the Holy Spirit is set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, I think I would go uh. I think I misheard. Let's keep praying because um, he wants us to send our lead pastor and our executive pastor at the same time. Saying <laughs> what you send your best. Yeah. Um, This is not a strategic decision. It's not one made in the flesh. It's not one that anyone would come to because they're like, you know what our great five-year plan is going to be? Let's gut ourselves of of the most quality theologian and the greatest encourager of all time in the same moment. But it is a spiritual decision. It is one that the Holy Spirit was making. This is what started the the church planting movement of the New Testament, this decision. And I got to tell you, I, I don't have a good story for this one other than I'm repenting. I mean truly we've tried um, the Lord is, has blessed what we're doing but I've been repenting I was repenting again this morning in my hotel room going God I want to I aim at Antioch and so I would just say I'd appreciate your prayers I'd appreciate your prayers that I wouldn't begin to love ministry success that I wouldn't grasp because this is the danger. When you start getting close, you think, oh, I'm going to gather it up for myself. And right now, we're, we're praying about, God, what does it look like for us to really give of our best? And the truth is, it, <laughs> it's only the sort of community that continues to keep their eyes on King Jesus that can do this sort of work. That when you look at the King of all that was willing to give himself all the way to the bottom, Um to bleed and to die on behalf of the church, to to win her back. He didn't hold back. He wasn't making a strategic maneuver. He was, by compulsion of the Spirit, submitted to the Father, giving everything. And the invitation is for us to be the sorts of community that with our eyes firmly set on Jesus, realizing that this is the only reason we have life and breath. is because He's ransomed and rescued us that we would say, you can have it all and an Antioch church is so firmly planted in the upper room that they say you can have our best so friends here's the invitation you're uninvited on the greatest adventure of your life beware if you really see King Jesus you really see him (laughs) nothing can ever be the same you can't you can't do ministry and have it be about you You can't do ministry and be be satisfied tending to the mechanisms of church internally. When you really see the king of all, you say, I will give it all. I want to be a part of the people of God, on the mission of God. And may I, like John the Baptist, decrease that you would increase and your glory would be known in this city. Oh, that God would raise up a whole generation of pastors that operate like that. That we would raise up and release leaders like that. May it be so. you for listening to the gospel in lagos we pray you've been blessed by this message to learn more about city church visit www.citychurchlagos.com city church love jesus love people love lagos